Chanel Cleeton's latest Cuban historical, The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, covers the remarkable real-life story of Evangelina, a young Cuban noblewoman who became an overnight celebrity, in quotes, in a bitter New York circulation war that birthed the world of newspaper tabloid journalism we see today. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Chanel talks about the birth of yellow journalism and the role the Cuban War of Independence in the 1890s played in its creation. It's a colourful story, poignant, with lots of human emotion and larger than life characters like William Randolph Hearst and his bitter rival Joseph Pulitzer. But before we get to Chanel, just a reminder that next week we'll be launching Binge Reading on Patreon. If you enjoy this show, would like to hear more from the authors we interview and support our team as we create more content, then consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. For the cost of a cup of coffee a month, you'll get access to the Binge Reading community, to more news about the authors you love, some behind-the-scenes news and the chance to make suggestions about who to interview next. To find out more, head over to the joysofbingereading.com homepage. But now, here's Chanel. Welcome back, Chanel. It's great to talk with you again. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here. For those who weren't with us then, you were on the show in 2019 with your first Cuban historical, Next Year in Havana, which had the distinction of being a Reese Witherspoon book club choice. Now you've got your third Cuban historical out, The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, and these books are wonderful. You're digging back into your own heritage with these stories, aren't you? Tell us a little bit about your family links with Cuba. I am. So I'm Cuban-American. My family came over from Cuba in 1967 after the revolution in 59, and they came to the United States as refugees. And I really grew up on their memories of Cuba and their love for their homeland. And so it's been really fascinating for me to be able to explore that part of my heritage, and learn new things about Cuban history um, as I go back in time and imagine what my ancestors' lives might have, might have been like. Sure. Now, this book draws probably more heavily on true events than the earlier ones did, and it reveals some harrowing information about the way that the Cuban population suffered in the War of Independence in the late uh, 19th century, the 1890s. Did knowing that it was your family's shared experience give this period a special interest and poignancy for you? It really did. You know, it was one of those things where I asked my grandfather about it and if he had heard anything, because it's something my great-grandparents would have lived through. And unfortunately, I just don't know what my family's experiences were like during that time period. But it definitely made me really interested to imagine what it would have been like for them. I mean, these were certainly such heightened and also important times in Cuban history. And so it was really interesting to be able to go back to that and, and to look at what my fictional characters went through and imagine what my ancestors would have as well. Yes. 
we've mentioned that it's based on true events and it's built around the story of a real life woman who attracted American interest quite remarkably. She was well born, she attracted the ire of the Spanish authorities and was thrown into a confined situation for reasons that are really very, very feeble um, because they suspected her father of something. Tell us about Evangelina Cisneros, who got dubbed the most beautiful woman in Cuba by the American newspapers. Yes, she was a really fascinating character. And when I started researching the book, I knew I wanted to write about this time period and this moment in Cuban history. And when I started researching, her name came up and I just as a side looked her up to see about her life. And when I found out about the facts of her life, it was just such an interesting story that I I couldn't help but want to write about it. So she was a young woman who her father was arrested by the Spanish for trying to join the revolutionaries during the fight for Cuban independence in, um, from Spain. And so she actually joined him in exile on the Isle of Pines. And while they were there, the Spanish colonel who was in charge of the Isle of Pines at the time basically tried to force himself upon her. She rejected his advances and subsequently was imprisoned in a a prison in Havana known as Recogidas, which was a notorious woman's jail in Havana. And so while she was there, her story came to the attention of the American media, specifically William Randolph Hearst, who was the publisher of the New York Journal at the time. And he really used her plight as a rallying cry to try to get the United States involved in the war that was going on in Cuba for independence from Spain. And he was the one that gave her the title of the most beautiful girl in Cuba and splashed um, her story all over his papers. And really she became an international celebrity for a very short period in her life as petitions were raised trying to get her out of prison. And then there was an attempted jailbreak. And no, I don't want to spoil too much about the book, but she was just one of those figures who had the larger than life life. And she was someone who was very ordinary and didn't expect this kind of notoriety. She was just a girl going about her life. She was very patriotic. She loved her family. And then because of um, the set of circumstances, she got put on this path where she was really thrust in the public eye in a way that she later remarked on not understanding um, why such a fuss was made about her life. And, and I think she was a little bit uncomfortable with the pressures of, of all of that. But certainly she tried to use the platform as much as she could to bring um, awareness to the cause of Cuban independence. And that was very much uh, dear to her heart. Yes, the other thread in the book, you've mentioned William Randolph Hearst. The other thread in the book is a very strong circulation war that was going on in New York between Hearst and Pulitzer at the time. And she became fodder for that development of yellow journalism, what we'd call tabloid journalism today. They went to extreme lengths to try and own the news, didn't they? And Cuba almost became a pawn in that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they both definitely looked at the situation in Cuba as an opportunity to increase circulation and also said he preferred power to profit. And so he was really um, trying to court influence and and shape the direction of New York society and and more largely global society with the stories he was covering and how he hoped that would influence U.S. foreign policy. And so they really got, as you mentioned, they were really engaged in this battle. Pulitzer at the time was nearing what he envisioned to be retirement 
And then Hearst swept in on the scene and and really was a threat to the newspaper empire that Pulitzer had built. And so they became engaged in this very big rivalry. And anecdotally, they said that at the end of the Spanish-American War, had the war not ended when it did, they both likely would have bankrupted themselves and the papers because they were spending so much money to try to cover the conflict and, and trying to do everything they could to get those circulation numbers up. The other key characters in the story are creations of your imagination, I understand, but they're all just as interesting in the roles that they play as Evangelina. You've got Grace, the young woman who is determined to become a journalist who's working for Hearst. You've got Marina, the high-born Cuban who's caught up in the war and whose path crosses with Evangelina's. And Rafael, who's a self-made Cuban-American millionaire who has got an identity crisis about where he should fit into this conflict. And each has a keenly perceptive assessment of the war and the motives for entering it, don't they? Yes, I mean, it was definitely important to me to look at all the the factors that went into the conflict and all the influences that you had. At the time, there was a very um, large Cuban exile community that was in the United States, largely because of the previous wars they had left Cuba. And they were there um, trying to get support for the independence movement. And so Rafael was an opportunity for me to let readers see into that world because it was hugely influential, particularly in New York and Tampa. And there were also women's clubs of Cubans who were in the United States who were raising money for the, the cause of independence and trying to bring awareness. So I wanted readers to see that aspect of the story. And then with Grace's storyline, I was really inspired by the real life figure of Nellie Bly, who was an American journalist who set about trying to make her mark on New York journalism. And so Grace looks up to her and that's someone that Grace uses as as a professional role model. And then Marina's story came to me out of the women that were in Cuba that were in the reconcentration camps, the Spanish sent many Cuban civilians to these reconcentration camps. They were sent from the countryside to the city centers. And it was a very difficult time in Cuba. And it was sobering hearing their stories and the toll that the war took on Cuba. So through Marina's story and her work as a courier trying to help the revolutionaries and her husband's role fighting with the revolutionaries, I wanted to bring that struggle in Cuba to the reader. And it was also something that for me personally was very sobering and certainly very powerful, especially being Cuban-American, to understand that perspective of the conflict. Yes. The story obviously has very emotional aspects, the suffering of the people on a human level, but you have brought in the political aspect as well. And it seems as if Cuba, it's been Cuba's misfortune in a way to attract interest from a succession of imperial powers, first Spain, then America, and then maybe in our century, Russia as well. Do you think that they're starting to find their own feet today? You know, I think that what you said about the kind of continuum of influence that colonialism has had on Cuba is obviously such a huge part of the book and something that has obviously come up quite a bit in the books that I've been writing and the research that I've done on Cuban history. So it was fascinating for me from that perspective, growing up in a Cuban-American household, so much of my family's lives was influenced by the revolution in 59 and So much of, you know, what they spoke about and their desire to go home was influenced by that event. And so now going through the historical record and looking at all of, you know, the different kind of eras in Cuban history and and how Cuba's growth has been influenced by foreign powers and the struggles that they faced under Spain. And then obviously I don't want to spoil too much about the book for people who don't know this 
part of Cuban history, um, but how things turn out after the war. It was very heartbreaking and definitely, I think, gave me a, a greater appreciation of all of the factors that have gone into Cuba's position and the way that events have turned out. So it, it was very interesting for me. Obviously, the cry of a free Cuba that you hear in the book is also one that you hear in exile circles now. And so mm. that harkened back as well, that familiarity of that hope for a truly free Cuba. Yes. Yeah. And it does come through that the fruits of the result of the war in of those years, the so-called fruit of the conqueror, they did manage to get rid of Spain. But it's fair to say that the people of Cuba didn't really see the fruits of um, a successful outcome, did they? Yes, I mean, there's definitely, once the United States enters the war, the tenor of the conflict changes. And obviously, this is a turning point in American foreign policy. And so you do see that heartbreaking situation where they've been through hundreds of years under colonial rule of Spain, and then independence is obviously not what they envisioned. And that's something that the characters feel very much in their lives. And you see that play out in the book. So it, it was heartbreaking to go through the story and then to see how things are, ended up not quite the way that people had hoped at the time. But that was a concern that was going on. You know, there was definitely a discussion on whether or not American intervention in the fight for independence was a good thing. And, and within Cuban groups, you definitely had divided opinions on that. Some people wanted the United States to come into the war to help out. Others thought that it was a dangerous situation. If they did, they were concerned that, you know, the U.S. would become entrenched in Cuba. So you see those kind of conversations playing out in the novel among the different characters. And the catalyst that finally did turn the Americans to war was the sinking of an American battleship in Havana Harbor. It's been sent down there with a monitoring role, I suppose, the USS Maine. And there's a still today controversy over why what caused the sinking of that ship. That was one area where the American newspapers, Hearst in particular, seized on it and blamed the, the Spanish for it. But there's still a lot of controversy over what really caused the, the main to sink, isn't there? You know, I think the largely accepted is that it was an accidental cause. What I try to do when I'm writing historical fiction is really just make sure that my characters only have the information that they would have had at the time. So I try very hard to not look at anything that is external to that time period just because I think that often shapes so much of the characters' reactions. And you're so right. Hearst really did use that. I mean, all of the papers did, but I think Hearst definitely saw that as an opportunity to bring the U.S. into the war. And then obviously that is after years of, of this push to get the U.S. in, that's the catalyst that really has them decide to, to move to war. So I, I wanted readers to see that aspect of it and to, to go through what the characters go through, which is trying to understand why this happened and if the Spanish are to blame or not. And we talk a little bit about the naval inquiry that goes on and that sort of thing. So I really want my readers to feel like they're on the ground with the characters, with the information that they had at that, that moment in history. Sure, sure. You've mentioned Nellie Bly, the real-life journalist that Grace took as being inspiration. And I must admit I looked up a little bit about Nellie because I hadn't heard of her before. And it struck me that both your character, Grace, and Nellie, they were put under extra pressure as women who were trying to break into a masculine world, a male world. They weren't very readily received by the editors of those papers as women journalists, but they were put under extra pressure perhaps to do things that 
were extreme to prove their worth to their editors. I'm thinking about Nellie's investigation of the insane asylums and going to actually stay in one herself under cover for some time. Did you feel as if that was part of the way that they pushed the tabloid journalism in those years? You know, I think there were different layers to it, definitely. I mean, with Nellie Bly, she's someone who, at the time that the book um, is set, and at the time Grace, my fictional character, is, is coming into the journalism scene in New York, Nellie Bly is quite held in quite high esteem. She's proven herself through various stories, including the work she did at Blackwell's Asylum, whereas Grace is entering at a much um, earlier point in her career and does feel the need to prove herself more. And it's an era of stunt girl reporters. So it's it's women doing, like you said, outrageous stories that were frequently writing under a pseudonym so that they wouldn't be exposed for future stories and lots of going undercover. The more attention grabbing, the, poss- the, the better for getting the attention, you know, of the readers and improving circulation. Nellie Bly, I think we see a little bit of the stunt journalism with her, but I think you also see someone who was very passionate about investigative journalism. And so I think a lot of times she wanted to go into these certain situations because it was an opportunity for her to get the story that she felt needed to be told and that maybe people weren't hearing. But definitely overall in New York journalism, there was a culture of of these stunt girl reporters, as they were called, and that need to top each other in order to gain prominence within the career field. Yeah, yeah. We've mentioned the first historical fiction novel that you did on Cuba next year in Havana, which, as we mentioned, did get chosen as a Reese Witherspoon book. And I noticed in this book, Beautiful, The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, that you do, in the acknowledgements, thank the Reese Witherspoon Book Club and the support that and and camaraderie, I suppose, the collegiality that you enjoy as an author. And I wondered, just could you share a little bit with us? How does it feel to be a Reese Witherspoon author? What do they? What do you get from it? Sure, it's been an amazing opportunity. Reese and, and the community are so supportive. Everyone at the book club has just been wonderful. Not just with Next Year in Havana, but with all of my subsequent books as well. They did, hosted the cover reveal for the Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, which was so kind of them. And you really do feel like you're part of this very passionate community that loves books. I love reading their picks and, and talking to their other authors and really just the joy that they have for reading and for books just comes through. So it's been an amazing opportunity. I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to connect with other readers and as a reader myself to find new books that I've really loved. Mm -hmm. And is it a given that will be made into a movie or is, is that still up in the air? Is next year in Havana set for the big screen or the small screen? So independent of, of Reese's Book Club, the, the TV adaptation for Next Year in Havana is a separate separate entity. But there, there are some you know, things happening with that. I can't, unfortunately, talk too much about it. And obviously, it's, the road from book to, to being on movie or TV is, is definitely a long one and, and unpredictable. So I, I don't know what will happen, but I'm definitely excited about the possibility. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll see something soon. Great, great, great. Yes. Look, turning to your wider career, a little bit away from the specific books, you've now got four under your belt. We haven't mentioned the fourth one set around Key West, but has your writing process changed much between book one and book four? Do you approach it differently now than you did at the beginning? 
You know, each book really is different. I think just in terms of what that particular book demands. So with Next Year in Havana and One Wheel of Cuba, because they were such personal connections to me with my family history and, and how much I grew up on the stories of the revolution, I really wrote and researched at the same time. I would I would look into something that I wanted to know more about and I would stop and research and then go back to writing with the last train to Key West and the most beautiful girl in Cuba. I really tried to front load my research more. I learned that while I was working on the last train to Key West because there I was going a little bit farther back in history. They were events that I was a little less familiar with. And so I think it's really helpful to have that strong research background um, before you start writing. And often as well, the research really informs the story for me in terms of the plot, the characterization. And so it was particularly with The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba when I was researching is when I learned about Evangelina Cisneros and, and decided she was going to be a character in the novel. And, and really that helped shape the direction of the book. So that's probably been uh, the biggest change. I still write all my books in Scrivener and I still love the revision process in each book. I, I like the opportunity to go through as many revision passes as possible. That's where I really feel like I can make the book shine. So those things have stayed the same. Are you a plotter? Do you do a big, strong outline or do you let the story develop organically as you go? I'm not a plotter. So I'm what we call a pantser where I let the story develop as I'm writing. Often I will start with a kernel of an idea or I'll have an idea of who my characters are. But as I'm researching and as I'm writing, I find that the story is constantly surprising me and my characters are constantly surprising me and so leading me in unexpected directions. But that's one of the things I love most about writing, I think, is that opportunity to go down uh, new paths and, and to be surprised by your work. I mean, it's always fun to start the day off thinking I'm going to go in one direction and then finding something that takes me in a different one that, that really suits the book well. So without giving away any spoilers, can you tell us any surprise that you got writing this last book, The Beautiful Girl? Were there things you thought were going to happen that didn't or things that did happen that you didn't think were going to? You know, I, I, I would say, honestly, pretty much all of it was really surprising. This is such a fascinating era in history. And I don't think I really appreciated that until I started researching the book and until, until I started writing it. I mean, you just have these very kind of larger than life figures doing sort of outrageous things. And then you have the really powerful story of what was going on in Cuba that was really moving for me. And then Evangelina, obviously, her storyline was definitely, I kind of say it was more, I couldn't have fictionalized something like that. It was definitely um, one of those, those rare cases where real life really was a little more unexpected than anything I could have fictionalized. So I, the whole book was really just an incredible journey. I feel like I learned so much writing about it and also really enjoyed the research and what I learned. That's great. I wonder, has your launch process for this book been much affected by the pandemic that we're still enduring? And, and how much have you been impacted generally by the, the things that have been going on around you? You know, this has definitely been a move to virtual events, which I had released. The Last Train to Key West came out last June. So I had released another book while the pandemic was going on. And that was my first move to, to lots of virtual events. Obviously, we had an in-person tour planned and then had to change it all for virtual. But this time, it, having had that point of reference and been through a virtual release once, it was helpful to to know what to expect. But definitely on the one hand, I think it's great that you have an opportunity to connect with readers who might not be able to go to events in certain locations. So it's really nice that 
we're able to connect virtually and have these conversations. Obviously, what's nice as well, having the in-person visits. But I think everyone has done a really great job of pivoting to these virtual events and has been so supportive. And it's just wonderful to see that enthusiasm for, for book events. Fantastic. Look, as you know, this is the joys of binge reading. So turning to Chanel as reader, I know you've been madly writing since I talked to you last, but hopefully you've had some time to also do some reading. Have you got any recommendations for our listeners of books that you maybe have read in the last 18 months that you feel are, you know, worth them investigating? I've read some amazing arcs uh, for historical fiction that's coming out this year. So I would really recommend Natasha Lester's The Riviera House. I That one's phenomenal. I think it's coming out at the end of August. It's a World War II historical fiction, and it's set in France during the Nazi occupation, and it deals with art theft. That was a really beautiful read. I love her books, and that one was amazing. I also really enjoyed Island Queen by Vanessa Riley. That's a fascinating read about Dorothy Kirwan Thomas, um, who's this amazing woman who lived um, in the Caribbean. She was born into enslavement and became one of the the most influential and powerful uh, women in the Caribbean and her time. And so that was a beautiful read. I think that one's out in July. And then also really loved The Personal Librarian by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. And that one, I think, is out in July as well. And it's the story of Belle DaCosta Green, who was J.P. Morgan's personal librarian. And she has an incredible story as well. So lots of great historical fiction. I think readers are going to have a really good reading year this year. It's fantastic. They all sound great. We had Natasha on the show, actually, with... Oh, okay. I think it's the Paris Secretly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So... Circling around, we're we're coming to the end of our time together, circling around and looking over the last few years and your overall career as you're now sitting where you are, is there anything you'd change if you were doing it all again? I don't think so. I've been really fortunate um, in my career and I think my career has taken me an unexpected path. I've been able to write in many different genres, which I've really enjoyed. And as a reader, I think that's, that's been really fun for me as well. So I'm just very grateful and I'm excited to see what direction things go into in the future. Sure. Now what is next for Chanel, the writer? What have you got coming up in the next 12 months, say? So my next release will be out next year. I believe it's going to be out next summer probably and I can't say too much about it yet but it's set in the 1960s and the 1930s and it features three heroines. One of them is Isabel Perez. So she's one of the Perez sisters from the first two books And her story kind of picks up where When We Left Cuba left off. And her story interweaves with two other women who are ancestors of Marina Perez, who's one of the heroines in The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba. So we can meet her branch of the family. And it's set in South Florida, Spain, New York, and Cuba. So it was a really interesting book for me to work on. And I'm just really excited to be able to share more about it soon. That's fantastic. That's going to be great fun. So it's not exactly a series, but it is lovely to have these linked characters. I mean, I wanted to know what happened next for Marina. So that'll be fun to have a chance to find out. Yes, I love getting to revisit them. But also, if readers haven't read the previous books, you can jump in at any time and and you won't be missing anything. So that's nice as well. 
That's absolutely right. Now, you mentioned about doing the digital launch. Where can readers find you online and do you enjoy interacting with them? I love talking to readers. I have a website, www.chanelcleeton.com, where you can find book club kits and information about my books. I'm also on Instagram at Chanel Clayton and Facebook at author Chanel Clayton. And I love chatting about books and talking about what I'm reading and just always happy to have that those that time with readers. I think it's really cool that we can you know share this love of books together. That's lovely. And in the show notes for this episode, we will have links to all of those as well as the rest of Chanel's books. So you can always find those online. Look, thanks so much for being with us today, Chanel. It's been really good talking and wonderful to once again catch up on what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was wonderful. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.